Hey, Wilder. Hey, Hollister. Oh, my gosh. We've got so much to do today. And I'm so excited because at the end of this podcast, we're reinstating the list of six, which O'Toole and I used to do. I'm so excited you were willing to do this. It's a lot of fun and everyone loves it. So, Of course. I mean, I, I will tell you, I'm having a really hard time limiting it to three choices, but that's always the problem. <laughs> What's really funny is when we don't talk about them beforehand, by the way, but our list of six is we pick a topic and then we each come up with three movies or TV shows or whatever it happens to be under that category. And we put our favorites in those spots. So today our list of six is going to be political films, fiction or nonfiction, either one, right? So yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to do it, but thank you for willing to give it a shot. And a of bunch course. of people have requested that we put it back in. So we're doing it. But secondly, we're also going to start each week. We're always going to be doing a little bit of news and there's so much news. We are taping on Sunday. The Emmys are tonight, right? Yes. So have you been reading anything about this lawsuit that Netflix has been attached to around the Queen's Gambit? Have you heard about it? Oh, I heard that there was one. I don't remember what it was, though. Okay. I don't know the... Uh... So it's really, really interesting, actually. And when I started to research it, it's so perfect for our podcast because it's so female-centric. So get this. In the Queen's Gambit, right, we are sitting with our brainy heroine, Beth Horman, and she's facing off against a Russian grandmaster, which, by the way, not an easy position to get. At the Moscow International, both characters in this particular moment are fiction. And a radio commentator remarks that she is not considered an important player by her male competitors. And here's what he says. The only unusual thing about her really is her sex. And even that's not unique in Russia. There's Nona Capriodashvili, but she's a female chess player, world champion, and has never faced men. He says, as the camera passes briefly over a female audience watching the chess match. Okay. Well, there was a Georgian from Russia chess legend by the same exact name who made mm -hmm. history as the world's first female grandmaster. And basically, right. she's alleging that the show belittled her career and damaged her reputation with a single sentence. Okay, here's what I don't understand. They didn't need to do that. No, I, well, I think they got a lot of questions as to why they didn't base her on this real Georgian person because there was a real female grandmaster. Why did they have to make one up, right? Why did they make up this character when there was a real person who did this? Yeah, but to belittle this person's career that way, they wouldn't have done it to a man is all I'm saying. And what's Oh, no, I agree. I don't think they should have done it. I don't think they should have, they should have heralded her as another woman. When you look at who was advising them, they had the male grandmaster advising them. I got to believe he didn't like her. And that's why he did it. Um, I actually highly doubt that. I, I there's why would you make such a stupid mistake that would cause you to be liable? I don't understand. I actually wonder if maybe it was at the time. I don't know when she went on to become a grandmaster and maybe no, at no, the no. time. She was a grandmaster in the 90s. No, 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 no. I mean, for when the show was set. Either way, 
I agree it was a mistake. Yeah. But because there was so much Russian influence by Russian chess players, and they always ostracized this woman, they never let her into the club. Mm -hmm. I just got to believe they didn't need to do it. And they did it as a little dig in the back. And you know what? Maybe. Good for her for standing up. I'm 100% behind her. And I'm going to keep posting about it until she gets her money from Netflix. (laughs) Or they change. And interestingly enough, she's not asking for money. She's asking them to take the sentence out. Oh, interesting. It makes it makes her even more compelling in my point of view. I'm just saying that whenever you get all men putting together a script or something like that, I can't help but roll my eyeballs and say, is this seriously what you need to do? Okay, that was a choice. I think they didn't need to need to make. I agree. Absolutely. Okay. now, by the way, mayor of Easttown and Mm -hmm. Queen's Gambit are two protagonists in that. Which one are you going to choose for tonight? Uh, sorry, which category are we in? We're in Best Actress for a Limited Series? Correct. <sighs> I don't know. I think, you know, honestly, I'm going outside the box. I'm picking Michaela Cole. Really? Oh I my may goodness. destroy you. You yeah. still haven't watched it, have you? No, I haven't. Well, no. then you should go watch it. It's fair. It's fair. Why don't you tell, uh, just give a sentence or two about what it is you're talking about. It's on HBO. It's a limited series. Uh, Michaela Cole wrote and starred in it. She plays a young woman who is on a deadline for finishing her book. She procrastinates. She goes out with some friends and then comes back, finishes her book, turns it in and realizes there are big gaps in her memory from the night before. And it's not until she goes to the police because her friend encourages her to while she's sitting in the interview room that she realizes that she was assaulted. And it's so powerful. What's the name of it? It's called I May Destroy You. I don't think she's going to win. I think Kate's going to take it, but I would choose her. I got to go with Taylor. I think the degree of difficulty for the Queen's Gambit was 10 times harder than Kate's. But we'll see. We'll see. I think we're both wrong. I think Kate's going to take it. But <laughs> OK, well, good luck to everyone tonight, because every one of these performances was at the top of the stellar list. Absolutely. OK. In other news, Stanley Tucci won already this week for search his Searching for Italy food series. Have you watched it at all? I haven't, but I hear it's fantastic. OK, but here's the thing. I watched two of the episodes. I'm not looking at the food. I'm looking at Stanley Tucci. I mean, but you it's a win-win situation. I know, in that I know, situation. I know, I know. But it makes me laugh because I do love the I love Top Chef. And it always is absurd because I can tell you what tastes great, even though you how can mm-hmm. I possibly do that when I can't smell or taste anything in front of me? These food shows don't make any sense in one way, but in another way, it's like you gotta laugh. Anyway, congratulations, Stanley. We're so proud of you, right? <laughs> I hope you're listening. Okay, now the other thing is on Friday, the first episode for season two of The Morning Show dropped. I haven't watched The Morning Show, so you go for it. (laughs) Well, you know, when it came out, I reviewed it. I said that I thought it was a really important feminist series. I thought it was right up there with The West Wing. I still do. Here's the thing we need to remember about it. It does a great job of giving us a little bit of both sides of the Me Too movement, a little bit of both sides from a male point of view. It's got to be based on Matt Lauer's fall from grace from his morning show. 
And it's a couple of times during the first season, you know, he's sitting there going, I didn't rape anybody. I it was consensual, not understanding that positional power is never consensual. Mm-hmm. And she does such a good job. They do such a good job of presenting that male point of view where, okay, you changed the rules, but I didn't know. And give them a moment to take a breath around that, which I don't really, but whatever. It's a great show for feminism. It's a great show for men and women to watch together because you can really walk through it. But I couldn't wait for season two, which didn't take off the way it was supposed to during 2020 because of Mm -hmm. COVID. Finally dropped on Friday. And the ending of season one was one of the most dramatic final episodes I'd ever seen on television in any series. And so you couldn't wait for the beginning of season two. And I had a very firm expectation in my mind of how season two would open and how the story would continue. And I'm watching the first three minutes and I'm like, what, what, what happened? And I'm saying, how dare you do this to me? These two women need to move on together, you know? And then what I realized is as the first episode continued, I think it's one of the best episodes I've seen on TV for a season two, maybe even a season one. And the ending, the last 45 seconds, unbelievably, tremendously poignant and perfect sets the stage for the rest of the season. The cinematography throughout is tremendous. It's just, it's really, really great and more strong if possible than season one. So I highly recommend that if you didn't see season one, you definitely get into season two. And maybe what I'll do is I'll put up a few of the episodes you could watch in season one, not having to watch all 10 of them to be able to go in there. So in high news, the morning show dropped on Apple TV and I give them a lot of credit. Really, really well done. You go Reese Witherspoon, you richest woman announced this week in Hollywood. She's the richest actor in Hollywood. Good for her, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, by chance, have you been keeping up with Nine Perfect Strangers? I have been. I'm not sure why, but I have been. I know. I know. But now I'm in. I'm in it to win it. Really? Oh, yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I am like, God, when is this thing going to end? Well, to answer your question, it's going to end next week. I just, I'm over it. I'm so over it. I get it. I get it, but I think it's getting stronger, stronger, and I think it's really interesting. So if you didn't stick with it, you could pick up last week and this week and then watch the final finale next week and you'll be fine. I don't know that you could. I think like you kind of have to know what happened in between. You think? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, like there is a lot that happened. I'll say like it's not my favorite show in the world, but there's a lot that happens in every episode. There's a lot of yeah. reveals of yeah. every character and whether it's good or not, I guess is, is up for grabs. But I, I do think there's a lot of reveals about each character that if you haven't come with them on their journey might seem very confusing. Right. And maybe, 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 maybe. Anyway, that ends our news for this week, but there's a lot going on. So many things dropping such an, ex- I love we're in fall. Almost. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> we're in fall. Okay, this week we are going to do an American crime story, uh, which is FX impeachment American crime story. And it's the story of Bill and Monica. I don't know how else to lead in, except for I thought we should start first with, did you see the first two seasons when they did? I have seen the first two seasons. You have. 
Okay. So they did OJ Simpson, which I thought was great. Didn't you? Mm -hmm. I thought it was a lot of fun. It's Ryan Murphy. So for those who are unfamiliar, Ryan Murphy was the creator of Glee. And then he went on to do this series. He's done a lot of other shows and movies. He did prom. He did Hollywood. He's done a lot of stuff, but his thing is kind of camp. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he's known for that. And I, I really thought that OJ did a, a great job of giving us that heaping spoonful of camp understanding what the camp was within the show. And, you know, I think cue John Travolta, but I think it <laughs> did a alive, good job. Staying alive. Yeah. Well, but you know, his whole character was just yeah. absolutely yeah. ridiculous in that yeah. show, but it also walked the line of still representing the story and showing us things we didn't know before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then they did Versace. I loved Versace. Did you? Yeah. Other people didn't love it as much, but I thought it was great. You know, I didn't see it. So I can't really speak to it, but I know that it didn't get the hype that this is getting. But Darren Chris did win an Emmy for it. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and frankly, even having not seen it, but just watching some of the scenes that they're pulling out around it, I couldn't agree more that he did. He was great. He w- yeah. he plays the villain in it. And the story is just, it's incredibly compelling. It is. And so is this story. This story is on Bill and Monica. And the first thought that everybody I talked with, I spoke to a lot of people and I'm going to intro that way. Look, if you weren't born yet or you were very young, the Monica Lewinsky saga with Bill Clinton was just filled of soundbite moments that stay within the minds of those of us who were old enough to really be following it. The time Hillary was on, I saw her actually on the big, huge screen in Times Square. And she did this morning interview and she was like attacking Monica Lewinsky, who at that point she knew was not lying. And Mm -hmm. she attacked her in a way that feminists said was just brutal. It's one of the reasons I think she lost in 2016, but Okay. And then there's the moment Bill said, I did not have sex with that woman. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. No, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Okay, Even more point. Yeah. Okay. And then there's the blue dress and then there's Ken Starr. I mean, there's so many moments for my generation. I'm 67. You're two generations behind me. Okay. My daughter was around your age and she was in seventh grade. And Mm -hmm. one of the things at that particular moment in time Kids didn't know what blowjobs were. And then all no. of a sudden it was all no. over the news. We all learned what a blowjob was. Is that where you learned it also? Probably. Yeah. I was 10. I mean, no, I was 12. I was 12 when this happened. So, I mean, you know. And then all I could think about at the time was this is my daughter's introduction to the president. of the. It was just a shocking moment in time. Okay. So enter in this, which is probably the first series or film that's around this topic. And the first thing I couldn't help but think, and I know a lot of my friends were too, is Bill must be apoplectic. Like, why are they doing this to me again? Yeah. I will say when they announced this, so originally this pre-COVID was meant to release right before the election. And Hollywood went up in arms. Oh, is that true? I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. 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 When it was announced, it was set to release in September of 2020 and everybody went, what the hell are you doing? And why are you doing this? Which by the way, I, I would agree. It's not, yeah. yeah not okay. Um, it, it's, <laughs> morally, wherever you stand on the spectrum, politically, it's not great for the Democrats. Right. <laughs> um, and 
COVID's no blessing by any means, but it certainly pushed this back to a different time. And so certainly it hasn't had the impact, I think, originally intended. Well, and then we have Francis, who you guys have heard of before, if you're somebody who listens to us consistently. And Francis actually has done a podcast with us on a film. She's a millennial. She just turned 30. And she said she spent the entire first episode with Wikipedia in front of her because she had to look up everybody's name. Oh, interesting. I knew who, except for the assistant White House counsel, which I remembered, I remembered that there was the scandal around that and they were trying to tie him to the Clintons. Um, I remembered that. Otherwise, I was I was pretty clear on who everybody was. And I was watching with my significant other, Mike, who followed it word for word every day. The New oh, York absolutely. Post, the New York Times, all yeah. of those places every day, every day. Yeah. Anyway, every time someone came on the screen before they uttered a word, he would say, that's so and so. That's so yeah. and so. So we have here we have this millennial juxtaposition in the first episode, looking everything up on Wikipedia, because as time has gone on, the all the participants were less relevant to the overall story, which she was aware of. And then we've got somebody like Mike who knew every single person before they walked in the door. Okay, so then episode two comes in and Mike through the whole thing is like all this girl chatter between each other is driving me crazy. (laughs) I was like, what? And meanwhile, Francis, her text messages are, this is so much better than the first one where they were laying all the groundwork. Hmm. So here's this guy who's, you know, much older saying, I like the stuff where they were, you know, laying out the groundwork like episode one. Episode one and two are very different. And now we're going to actually get into what happened. What do you think of the series? And there's so much to talk about in terms of these people playing these roles. Um, I hate it. You do? I think it's awful. I really do. You think it's awful in what way? In every way. <laughs> I think it's it's campy without being aware of how campy it is. I think the prosthetics, I, look, just look at Paula Jones. I mean, her nose doesn't look like that. It's absurd what they did to her. I think their focus on Linda Tripp is just sad and it just infuriates me because they don't actually have a take on this woman. They're just presenting well, Here's her. what's startling. I've only, again, only seen the first two episodes, but Melinda Tripp's daughter, Allison, who's mentioned in the first episode, by the way, she says her mother who passed away, Linda Tripp died about, I think five or seven years ago, somewhere around there. Anyway, she said her mother would love this because it showed the complexity of who she was. I think she looks awful. In- I think they show her in a villain light, which, you know, the betrayal is pretty clear. Like, and you, and by the way, we're not giving anything away. No, the story's the story. There's, yeah, there's no deal breaker there. It opens in the first five minutes surrounding the betrayal between Linda and Monica. I think Beanie Feldstein is adorable as Monica. I think she's also portrayed as young and naive and very sweet, but also kind of aware of what she's doing, but also completely unaware of what's happening around her. And I just think it's entertainment for entertainment's sake without any awareness or commentary. I hear that in the upcoming episodes, there's some kind of connection between where we were then and where we ended up with Trump. But I think that's a reach. 
And I think. Oh, yeah. This is laying out a story that took place during my lifetime, but it's not, it's not about Trump. No, I I mean, I think Sarah Paulson's a great actor. I think she's she's doing just fine in the role, but it's completely blah to me. It's over the top. The music, every scene has this crazy operatic, intense dun, dun, dun music. I know there's no murder in this. And by the way, it it not only is the music like that, it's also intrusive. It's sort of it's it's an uninvited guest into the room. I don't like it. But we got to go back to Paulson a minute. Yeah, go for it. A lot of controversy because she wore a fat suit for this. And she did also gain weight. She gained weight and she wore a fat suit. But all there are a lot of obese organizations that say you've got to stop doing this. You've got to stop using fat suits instead of hiring actors that are heavier to play the role. There's got to be more actors in Hollywood than skinny actors that need to wear fat suits. And then some other people are saying, look, it's like a prosthetic. I mean, you put the nose on uh, Paula, you know, right. That, you know, that's just the look they were looking for. But what was interesting to me uh, so I don't know which side of the fence you sit on there. And I don't really know which side I sit on. Do you have a side of the fence you sit on with that? I don't know. I mean, I think, first of all, I, you know, it, Monica got lampooned at the time for being the fat girl, which I don't think she was at all personally, but Beanie Feldstein isn't the skinniest girl you've ever seen in your life. And I, I love that they cast her. I think she fits yeah. the role, right? I think Sarah Paulson is someone that Ryan Murphy works with all the time. I think she did the work to gain some of the weight and you know, this has been the history of this industry. I mean, go look at Christian Bale's career. That man drops 50 pounds for a role. And By then, the way, yeah, he could have made himself very sick. He could have done great damage to himself the way he right. played that. Yeah. For the machinist. I mean, you literally see every rib on him. He did that to himself. So like part of this, I think, is part of the acting process is transforming yourself for a role. I agree that we need to have a lot more people in diverse bodies. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I also think the right person should be cast for the role. Right. Well, it's just like, you know, they're saying you should cast a gay actor for a gay part. I don't I think know. that's different. I think that's, I think that's yeah. a little different. Well, I think it's pretty similar, actually. It's a, it's a, I think it's a little different in the sense of we haven't gotten to a point yet where gay actors have been allowed to be gay or play straight roles either. And until we're to a place where everybody can play any role, I agree that those actors need to be given that opportunity. And I agree that that larger actors need to be given. I'm just going to say that, that's too. a say, you're, you just made my case. That you're right. The criteria you've laid out is the same thing for it's large. The same large thing. You're right. Yeah. I mean, and not only that, one of the things Paulson kindly said was, "Look, what I have become aware of since all this came out is that." there aren't a lot of roles for overweight women. So for me to no. take one away from an over, a great actor who happens to be overweight, that gives me a moment to pause. But she said two things I'd like to pull out here. One of the things she said, the first one is, I think the thing I think about the most is that I regret not thinking about it more fully. And that is an important thing for me to think about and reflect on. I also know it's a privileged place to be sitting and thinking about it and reflecting on it, having already gotten to do it and having had an opportunity that someone else didn't get because of their weight, she explains. You can only learn what you can learn. Should I have known? Abs-fucking-lutely, but I do now, and I wouldn't make the same choice moving forward. 
And the second thing she made, and I'm not sure when she said I wouldn't have made the same choice, it means would she have just said I'm not wearing a fat suit or whether she wouldn't have taken the role? It wasn't clear to me. But the second thing that she says, which I think is important, is I would like to believe that there is something in my being that makes me right for this part. And that the magic of hair and makeup departments and costumers and cinematographers that has been part of movie making and suspension of belief since the invention of cinema. Was I supposed to say no to the part? This is the question I ponder. I think, you know, I think it's a very thoughtful response to the controversy around it, but I thought I'd bring it up. I, I love she, her. I think she's very good in the role. I really do. I've worked with her a little bit. I think she's full of integrity. She's very compassionate. She's incredibly smart. She's a producer on this, right? So she is. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, she's an executive producer. Yeah. Yeah. But she's, we can talk about the difference between that if you want, but she was in OJ. She's not in, in Versace, but she is a Ryan Murphy regular, right? He loves her. He puts her in just about everything he can. And I think he's brilliant for it because I think she's brilliant. By the way, they wrote it for her. This is what I'm saying is I, I think they wrote this role for her. I think they did this for her. Okay. So the other person I want to talk about is Bill Clinton. Have I seen that guy in anything else? Absolutely. What? It's Clive Owen. Did I not recognize him? You did not recognize him because he's buried under 20 pounds of prosthetics uh, with an accent that comes and goes pretty uh, however he wants. Uh, you would have seen Clive Owen in Children of Men, in well, also, City, yeah. yeah, in, I mean, he's been in, he's in a bunch of stuff. But here's the thing, and, and until you started using the word campy, I don't think I figured it out, and then that sort of helped me understand. When Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton were running for president, <laughs> which is the way I looked at it, because- That's I, hysterical. Well, <laughs> I was in New York with H2. H2 and I had dinner with the four of us, Hillary, Bill, H2 and myself. And we were being asked for a lot of money for his campaign. So he was not well known, although they just started writing about him. He was coming out of Arkansas. And at the table, she did all of the serious talking. Here's what we stand for. These are our issues. This is what we're going to do. And he just sat there and had me in hello. But he didn't say anything of substance, not one thing. But here's the part that they didn't get right. And maybe it's because they were trying to be campy. You can tell me. He was one of the most compelling men I've ever been in, in a space with, meaning he just was oozed sexuality. When he looked and talked to you, you were the only person in the entire restaurant. Mm -hmm. I was totally taken with him. And I could see the charisma mm -hmm. that I felt was Kennedy-esque. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons when we left the dinner where I said, that guy's a Kennedy, he's going to get elected. We got to get, you know, mm -hmm. and with everything she said, and she's got this amazing brain behind her. They don't show that about him to me, no. the sleaze bucket. And I wouldn't want to sleep with him if you paid me. Well, I think that's history. Also, I think that's, you know, hindsight is 2020. Um, when Hillary was campaigning for herself, I was in college and I ran the television studio on campus. So I got a quote unquote press pass to go see Bill Clinton speak to my campus. And I swear to God, there was a rock star coming to school 
He, there were girls yeah. in bikini tops written on their stomach. I love you, Bill. I mean, it was insanity. We're not talking that long ago. You're talking about 2009 or 10 or something? Yeah, this was 2008. This was before the 2008 election. This okay. was before yeah. Obama became the nominee. And uh, yeah, I mean, well, it was early enough. Yeah, that he was still out there, but he's magnetic. By the way, I think that's the part that's missing in this. The two parts that are really missing is it looks like he picked her because she was the only one around him that would pull out her underwear in front of him. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think that's true. I follow her now on Twitter and I have tremendous respect for her. She is, oh, witty, absolutely. she is brilliant. She is all over things. She is self-effacing. She is not narcissistic. Mm-hmm. I love her on Twitter. And yeah. I don't think it shows her incredible intelligence and quick wit. Mm -hmm. And they just don't present her as somebody who could actually entice a president to take this kind of risk. And secondly, they certainly do not make him the kind of guy that you can understand her falling for, for any other reason than the fact that he was the most powerful man in the world. That was not the only reason I believe she went with him. No, I agree. I think he was a rock star president. People went nuts over him. Yeah, but we can't see it. We don't feel it. I think she says it. She does say when he looks at you, you feel like the only person in the world. Saying it and feeling it on the screen. The screen gives you the opportunity to show it. You know, there's 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 a long history of the saying show, don't tell in in Hollywood. I think it's a very weak part of it. And I think it could have made the difference between huge success and dismal failure, which I think this will be. I am wondering if they're promising to do Benghazi after this, because I can't (laughs) for the life of me fathom why Edie Falco agreed to play Hillary. She barely has a line, at least in the first two episodes. And from what I hear, she's more later, because when she comes forward, I know exactly why she took it. When you think about the imagery around some of the things Hillary did late in the game on that and the way she spoke out in public and everything else. I think it's a great role. A great role. Yeah, I just, I don't know. It's the way they're telling it. I will say the first two seasons, I think part of the reason they're so successful is because there's a murder at the center of it, right? There are literal life and death stakes. This is taking on the idea of how the presidency changed and how fallible the president became under Clinton's rule because of this network of conservatives, cough, cough, and Coulter, who, by the way, is to a T by Kobe Smulders. Yeah. Very impressive. Great, yeah. But they don't take on the larger political conversation. Yeah, it's agree. not a part of the show. But I think the writing is lacking. It doesn't show the enormity of how great these two people probably were together in a room. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I think the acting for those two roles, which are critical to the success of this, are not at the same level as Sarah Paulson. Yes. So. I think it's also just hard to be at the same level as Sarah Paulson. I love Edie Falco and, and I think Clive Owen's great. I just think it's more of a you're getting more of an SNL feel of these roles rather than an actual taking on these roles to act as. I agree. Okay, but we're going to have to wrap this up because we've got all these other things to do. But are you going to watch the rest? I'm not. I Normally, I like to see things through to the end, but I just, I couldn't handle it. I understand totally. So I get it. So we're going to move on though. And I probably will see the rest of it, especially because my significant other wants to see the rest of it. So I think it's going to be a lot more chick talk. 
but <laughs> okay, I'll keep you posted and I'll try to at the end of it say whether it was worth the additional hours or not. But we're awesome. going to move on now to our first list of six in many, many years, two or three years, our first list of six. And this list of six is going to be films around politics that could be based on fact or not. So hit me with your first one, Wilder. My first political film is The Mouse That Roared. Hmm. It's from the 1950s. It's starring Peter Sellers. And the idea is he's from a very small nation that's out of resources. So they come up with this brilliant idea. It's a satire to invade America. And in invading America in their chainmail suits and spears and bows and arrows on a little rickety boat, they are hoping to be conquered and taken on as part of the American colonies. What ends up happening is they accidentally capture a nuclear weapon (laughs) and bring it home. It's one of the greatest political satire films I've ever seen. Absolutely worth the watch. And I think it holds up today. You can't replace Peter Sellers. He's just the best of the best. You know, people always loved him. At the time I did, in retrospect, I liked him more. So good choice. I don't know the film, but I might check it out. You should watch it. It's a blast. Okay, I've got to start with all the president's men, you know. Fantastic. I mean, Robert Redford is Bob Woodward, who became a heartthrob. Bob Wo- oh, Woodward became really, a heartthrob. Well, he's I know he continued to be one, but he's I don't know that he's the most exciting partner in the world. But at any rate, and then we have this passionate Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein, which, of course, reminds me of why he and Nora Ephron should be married. <laughs> and then we have Deep Throat and Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley, who was, you know, done proud by by Jason Robards. Mm-hmm. and. Okay, so get this, though. When it was released, it was 1975. It was just two or three years after Nixon stepped down, yeah, which made it all the more compelling because there had been this time where from the time you see Nixon waving from the helicopter, this weird wave, which was clearly a desperate last flag, if you will, we didn't hear about Nixon. He It just went dark. There, it, Nobody mm-hmm. talked about it. It was just moving on, trying to get beyond what had happened. Okay, then... All the President's Men, which was based on the book. When the book came out, it was a bestseller, but still, it wasn't the same. Then this movie comes out, and everybody went. And what we learned by watching the movie what was what was going on behind the scenes of what we were reading in the Washington mm-hmm. Post at the time. So it was sort of like this whole unveiling of behind the curtain, which was wonderful. So I don't know anyone who didn't go to see the movie. A number of my it's friends a brilliant at the time, film. yeah, they went and saw it twice. I just think it's definitely got to be up there. I'm going to play to end my particular segment here. Ben Bradley's speech to the two guys when they made a mess up and he was saying, okay, you're the only thing that's stopping us from doing it. So here's Ben Bradley who talked about the enormity of what these two guys were doing, how what they were doing was really the only way that Watergate was actually going to happen. So, mm-hmm. You know, the results of the latest Gallup poll, half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes. Then get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. But if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. 
night. Okay, what's your next one? My next one's got to be Dr. Strangelove. Really? Absolutely. Huh. The Mouse That Roars is satire, certainly, but Dr. Strangelove takes it to the brink. I think it's maybe one of the best films ever made, but in addition to being fantastic and entertaining and wonderful, the message at the center of this, that we are on the edge of destruction and the only thing holding us from that destruction are these insane people who all choose to be in charge of politics. <laughs> uh, I think you can't get better. It's also Peter Sellers. I've got a little bit of a theme going on here. Kubrick takes it. He takes it to the limit. It's one of the most entertaining political films you'll ever see, but it also, that message underneath it and our one minute to midnight destruction is just so brilliantly exposed within the satire and the fun of this movie, but it's got so much to say. You know, I think the the song, which was a big song back then, The Age of Destruction, have you, did you ever hear that song? I'm, I'm sure play, I have. Yeah, I'm going to make sure we play a couple of bars of it here because it so fits in line with what you're saying. I have not seen Dr. Strangelove, but I will watch what? that. I know. I will. I will. I will. I promise. I promise. But mine, I'm going to move to I know. You can't I know, be a film know, critic and not have seen Dr. Strangelove. I don't know. know. Taking your card. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to work on the ways in which I am not up to par. I'm going to work. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go with The Contender, 2000. Jeff Fantastic. Bridges, Joan Allen, Gary Oldman. Okay. I picked it because it's so perfect for right now. And again, mm-hmm. I'm going to play something, which is the last speech that Jeff Bridges gives as he's going into Congress and saying, you guys, you have blood on your hands, all of you, mm-hmm. every one of you. And it's so apropos to now. And it, when it came out, it didn't get the kind of showing that I thought it should. But anyway, it's a political thriller about Lane Hansen who was a senator who's nominated to become vice president following the death of the president. And -hmm. during the confirmation process, basically they go out to slaughter her and she stands tall and refuses to give in to what would be uh, her high principle. She doesn't want to do it. So she, Mm -hmm. she refuses to comment on the allegations, which were not true, but it's so relevant to both the Kavanaugh hearings to the way lies have grown like weeds within our society in terms of politics and everything else. So it's perfect, a perfect place. But the other thing is Jeff Bridges, how many people have played president of the United States? So many people. I mean, so many. A hundred maybe? I don't even know. But guess whose favorite president actor Barack Obama chose? I mean, I'm surprised it's not Bill Pullman from Independence Day, but- Go for it. (laughs) Okay. It's Jeff Bridges. He feels that that his presidential role in this movie was the best one he's ever seen. So, okay. Now get this. DreamWorks wanted Michelle Pfeiffer for the role of Lane Hansen. And they refused to go along with it because the role was actually written for Joan Allen. And she, yeah, she has never really been a star factor, Mm -hmm. but every time she plays a role where she gets to be the star, she's amazing. So yeah. That's my second pick. Okay, last but not least, what do you got? Last but not least for me is Good Night and Good Luck, directed by George Clooney. Um, If you guys haven't seen this movie, it's really breathtakingly fantastic. It's all about Edward Murrow's plight to take down Senator Joseph McCarthy and speak truth to power during the McCarthy hearings and how he is not going to stand for the witch hunt 
that is the Red Scare. And I think in the times that we're in now, when we've just come out of a presidency that diminished journalism in every way, shape and form, I think you see what real journalism can do in this film. And it's period perfect. There is not a scene in which people aren't smoking (laughs) inside. There's no non-diegetic music within this film, which means all the music that's playing is actually playing within the scenes. So you've got this wonderful jazz singer that's like recording down the hallway. And that's the soundtrack to this movie. And it's beautiful. It's well executed. It's brilliantly acted. Um, Clooney's in it, but he's not the lead. And it's just, it'll show you what the fairness doctrine means and why we desperately need it. Cool. Very cool. You know, I haven't paid attention to that. And I think Clooney is so much deeper than we realize. So I'm I'll, I'm going to watch that one also. I'm definitely in. I think you'll like that one a lot. I, You know, I st- there's so many films. I didn't know what to do. So my last one is The Pelican Brief. Oh, and- I'm so shocked. Really? I'm shocked that neither of us picked an American president. I assumed you were going to pick an American well, president. Well, you know, so. it's funny. I was going to open with everybody thinks I'm going to pick Sorkin's an American president, but I didn't pick it only because it's too kitschy and there's too many important things to say around politics to pick a film. Fair enough. Like yeah, we'll give it an honorable yeah, mention. Yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> the Pelican Brief, interestingly enough, was written by Alan Pakula, right? And what's strange about that for me is he also wrote All the President's Men Mm. and Presumed Innocent and Sophie's Choice. And I sort of- What a talent. I know. I had forgotten about how much I like him because when I think of my favorite script writers, he's not usually one of them. Mm -hmm. But here I am out of three films, I picked two that he wrote. But again, the reason that I like the Pelican Brief is because we are looking at the Supreme Court in a new way, in Mm -hmm. a new way that we've never looked at it before. And to recognize the importance of the Supreme Court and what it does, et cetera. So I think it's worth going. And- The film came out in 1993. Roger Ebert wrote that it contains no substance or meaning is not its problem. No (laughs) substance or meaning? It contains a tremendous amount of substance. It is a clever device to take your mind off your problems for 141 minutes. I enjoyed it until it was over. I will have little reason to think about it in the weeks to come. I will Hmm. forget it in a year. Interesting. I know. And by the way, I think back then you could because you never needed to worry about it. Whereas the Pelican Mm. Brief is one of those movies that's on as you flick the channel during a Sunday afternoon, quite often the Pelican Brief is on. Mm -hmm. I think it's because as time went on after 1993, when the great Roger Ebert wrote that, the Pelican Brief storyline and its possibility for our Mm -hmm. present moment has been much stronger Uh, as time went on. So anyway, that's why I picked it. I think that's great. I think there's a few that are honorable mentions that didn't quite make the list, but I think you're not allowed to mention them. We're not allowed. No, because you're supposed to pick the three. You should all go watch JFK anyway. It's great. Oh my God. She just snuck it in under the doorway. (laughs) I broke the rule. I broke the rule. I'm done with you today. Anyway, (laughs) thanks everybody for listening. We went a little over today because of our list of six, but it was great. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week, Wilder. See you next week. 